Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this Lean Pub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Michael T. Lombardi. Based in St. Louis, Mike is a software engineer who works for Puppet, a company based in Portland that helps companies automate their software delivery lifecycle, both for people who build and deploy applications and for those who manage infrastructure. Mike is co-founder and organizer of the St. Louis PowerShell user group, and he is the co-host of the PS Power Hour, which you can find on YouTube at youtube.com slash C slash PS Power Hour. And he is the occasional host for the ChatterOps community chat show, which you can find if you search YouTube for ChatterOps. And you can also follow uh, that uh, podcast or that interview series on Twitter at ChatterOps.org. You can follow Mike himself on Twitter at BarbarianKB, and you can find out more about him and his projects at MichaelTLombardi.gitlab.io. Michael is the author of the LeanPub course, PW Shop, a PowerShell 101 workshop. In this interview, we're going to talk about Mike's background and career, professional interests, what PowerShell is, his work on the PowerShell conference book, and of course, his course, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience being one of the first people to make a Lean Pub course. So thank you, Mike, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and software. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I grew up as an Air Force brat. So everywhere was home and nowhere was home. Uh, I sometimes think of Brooklyn as home because that's where my dad's family's from. So we would go back there every year. It was one of those uh, very few places that had sort of stability in my life. Um, then we ended up in St. Louis, and my dad got out of the Air Force, and I've somehow just uh, like magnetically stuck here ever since. Uh, that was not intentional, but it's it's been enjoyable. Uh, so I got into tech the way I think a lot of people initially do, which is uh, geeky, nerdy, played around with computers, decided to build one, decided to play with stuff, needed to mod things. Um, and then I went away to uh, college uh, ambitiously, thinking that I would manage to get myself a computer engineering, electrical engineering, and computer science degree simultaneously. Wow. So I started off as a triple major. Um, took a really, really hard left turn, though, and dropped out my junior year as a history major with a minor in Russian and philosophy. Um, and then sort of fell into a really good inter internship opportunity, um, which uh, it turns out you can only maintain student internships if you retain student status. Uh, so a uh, pointer for those of you out there that are thinking about that, uh, don't quit halfway through your internship. Uh, they will end your internship. So I found myself uh, scrambling to figure out how I was going to pay bills. Um, and I lucked out. Uh, a friend of a friend asked me if I wanted to interview for a sysadmin role, and I ended up in tech. And at first it was, uh, uh, to, to quote earlier self, uh, I'm just doing this to pay the bills till my novel takes off, right? Um, that never happened. It turned out I really enjoyed doing tech. Um, and so I've kind of circled back around to the joy of writing um, by sharing technical learning stuff with folks instead of writing novels. That's really interesting. So your, your training in software engineering came partly from a university experience and then partly from on the job. Did you do any other, any other kind of training? Uh, I had very little uh, formal training after uh, some initial schoolwork. I went back to community college took a couple courses on server stuff, exactly as much as I needed to become a DOD contractor. Uh, I had a heartbeat, I had a security clearance, and I just needed to get one or two certifications. Uh, and then everything since then has been uh, either self-learning, so uh, trying things out on the job, trying things out at home, building a home lab, that sort of thing, or has been, I've been, I've been very, very lucky with mentors. Um, so I ascribe a lot of my success to having the right people around me and being able to kind of learn from them. What's the experience like, obviously, without giving up any details, uh, working on DOD contracts, Department of Defense, I should say? Uh, 
I am lucky that I was able to do it at the time. I would never go back. Um, the whole system is pretty gross. Um, I needed to pay bills, uh, and I grew up around the DOD, but seeing it from the inside, the way the contracting works, it's not a pretty picture. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of kind of nonsense that happens there. Uh, and at the end of the day, like, the, I guess, way that I kept myself from, like, going nuts about it was that I would say, like, well, at least I'm doing a good job here. Like, they'll just hire anybody to do it. So at least, like, if I, I give it what I can, then we're getting something back out of it. Um, but I don't think I could go back. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've, I've interviewed people for this podcast before who've, you know, worked for similar types of organizations. And I don't think anyone's ever said it explicitly. And I might be confusing this with, you know, some TV I've watched. But I get... I get the impression that when the money is so big and the stakes are so high that often you end up in a situation where there are a lot of very ambitious executive and manager types who's, who are man jockeying for position and managing their own. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it too. And I, I think part of it is that the processes and the system around it is so Byzantine that it's very easy to decide that it's more valuable to you personally and to your company to pursue uh, excellence in that arena rather than excellence of, of product or service, right? If you can play the game better, it doesn't matter how good the product is. You just, you just said in a better way than I normally do uh, something I often say when in discussing these kinds of topics, which is getting government contracts and building pro like efficient and working products are both very interesting and difficult skills to master and they don't have anything to do with each other. I would agree to that. Yeah. Um, in one of your bios online, uh, you talk about a stressful situation that you encountered when something went wrong with a critical application. And this prompted you to think about stress generally and how to make work more humane. And I was wondering if you can tell us, tell us that story about that experience. Oh, absolutely. Um, so that job that I mentioned I got hired into was as a tier two sysadmin. So I went from an intern managing spreadsheets and having no idea how to do real IT uh, into a tier two systems administration. The system that we were um, responsible for is the system that moves medevac patients for the military. Um, so reasonably high uh, profile. If the system goes down, um, people are still able to move them by hand, right? Flight nurses are amazing. Um, the folks on, on the ground are incredible. So there's no real worries about that, but it's more... When you get a call from a user, the call is a colonel wanting to know why he can't find out where his injured soldier is. Or it's somebody who's trying to report on status to a family member and it's like, hey, your system isn't updating. I need this report. What am I going to tell this person's spouse, right? Um, so in that regard, it was, it was a good experience because anytime something crashed, like you couldn't get – like you, ha you immediately understood how the user felt, right? Uh, so I say all that to build up the context for this, which is that uh, I built a beautiful bespoke patching system, which I would never recommend to anybody. That's a terrible idea. Um, and it involved being able to do systemic reboots of your uh, system. So you'd patch it, and then you would um, drop it down and bring it back up and then verify that everything is in state. So theoretically, all automatic, perfect. Uh, by default, because I, I designed stupidly, uh, it would apply to every single system we had, uh, so I was running the um, patching, which was supposed to be for our alt site, thinking nothing of it. And then I hit go. And I was looking at the server names and I was, huh, does that say prod? That's not right. It's not. Oh, no. Uh, and so I began to drop our production servers. 
Uh, luckily, one of the first servers to go down was the control node. It rebooted itself, so it didn't carry out the others. So the only servers that went down were a few app servers and uh, the control node. None of the databases were dropped live, uh, which was good. Uh, but it stressed me out, freaked me out. I was horrified I was going to lose my job. Um, there was a, a big after-action review, all that kind of stuff. And I realized that at no time did we ever kind of look into like, okay, well, why why were we able to have like one person just drop all of prod? Um, that didn't seem to be a question that ever came up. It was, why did Mike think it was okay to drop prod, right? Which is a very different question. So I started looking into it, um, and what I found... I have tried and tried to dig up the article, and I can't now, which is frustrating. But uh, it was a series of articles that I found where it talked about the effects of stress on your health. And one of the things that came up was that firefighters and cops have what you can think of as these massive spikes of stress during their career, right? Um, most days, it's relatively stressful, but not uh, excruciatingly so. Uh, but those spikes kill you. Um, those massive spikes in stress destroy your body, destroy your health. What they also found is that people who have medium-high levels of stress, they focused on uh, op people in operations roles. And in that case, I believe it was financial operations, so not necessarily like technical uh, operations, um, folks who are like in accounting for big business, that sort of thing. Um, they operate with very little autonomy. They operate with very little um, freedom to move, um, but lots and lots of responsibility and almost no uh, recognition unless it's negative recognition. What they found was that the stress levels that they were seeing there and the health outcomes were roughly the same as they were seeing for cops and firefighters, which sounds kind of goofy on its face. And so the question that I asked was, surely there's another way to do work, right? Like there has to be something else. So when I came around to the whole idea of DevOps, it had absolutely nothing to do with shipping software and everything to do with, can we find a more humane way to work? Like there has to be better work patterns available to us. And it turns out that there are. Uh, and then from there, I kind of fell into looking into restorative justice for organizations as well. That's funny. That was uh, going to be my next question. You talk in your LinkedIn profile about how you're passionate about restorative justice. And I wanted to take the opportunity to ask you uh, just to explain a little bit for the listeners what it means and uh, how you express your passion for it. Sure. Um, so the short version of this is that I'm stealing everything that I have here from Sydney, Je Sydney Decker, um, who's a professor in Sydney, I believe. Uh, who first started studying this through uh, airline safety. Right? And so uh, his book, Just Culture, is where I learned a lot of this stuff. But the idea of um, restorative justice is an alternative to punitive justice, retributive justice, which is what we typically think of when we think of our justice system. Uh, so in a retributive justice system, we ask who did a wrong thing and what should we do to the person who did the wrong thing? Like what should their punishment be? How can we... The idea being that punitive justice, retributive justice, will prevent future infractions because people will be less likely to make them because they're uh, concerned about the consequences. Um, so it's fundamentally a backwards-looking style of uh, or approach to justice, whereas restorative justice asks instead who was hurt by what happened, who has been impacted, right? And that will include first-order victims. Uh, so a good example of this is if uh, I'm texting while driving and I crash my car, right? Um, who else was hurt first? Like who did who did I crash my car into, right? If I damage somebody's property by doing it, there's nobody else involved. It's just me and somebody's light pole. What what are their needs? What do they need to hear? What do they need to get from it? Uh, and that can also include second order victims, right? In a lot of cases, especially organizational, um, this comes up a lot in uh, medical fields, right? So you're working to save somebody's life and you make a mistake. Um, 
it's not like that doesn't have an impact on you, right? Nobody wants anybody to die on their watch. Nobody wants anybody to have a bad health outcome. That's no doctor goes to work wanting that. So uh, you could think of them also as victims, right? Uh, and so what restorative justice asks is where did the system of uh, measures go wrong, right? Almost never. And this is, uh, there's, you, can, you can make the argument for restorative or retributive, I think, at like the societal level, like what should we do about like violent crime, right? But inside of an organization, if somebody has an infraction, most times it's not malicious. I would, I would almost say almost never, right? Very, very rarely does somebody decide to maliciously throw a wrench into things. Most often, what you'll find is that things go wrong because we haven't taken a, a more uh, holistic view of the system. So when something does go wrong, what you want is an accounting, right? An honest, forthright accounting of what went wrong, how you, why you did the thing you did, um, what factors played into that. Um, because most people, when they're wronged, they want to, they, they want to understand what happened, right? Um, they want you to sincerely uh, give an accounting. Uh, but at the same time, they also want to know that something in the system is going to change. So in the case of my push to prod, um, or my reboot of prod, rather, what we wanted to see changed was really some sort of control over or, or oversight over like, OK, well, if we're going to do something that could bring down all of production, do we need a second yes person to it? Right. Should it be in the hands of one or should we have some sort of system whereby we say before you run this command, get a verbal OK and eyes on. Right. Which is what we ended up agreeing to. Um, so restorative justice looks forward. What can we do to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody again? That's very often what victims want to know is if you're impacted. So if you're using Amazon and it triple charges you, right, you don't want to hear how they're very, very sorry that that happened to you. And it was just a technical glitch, right? You want to know what the bug was. And more importantly, you want to know what they've done to make sure that that bug's not going to affect anybody else, because you don't want any of your friends to go through a similar experience. And this waffles around a, a huge amount of stuff, but restorative justice is a fundamentally alternative approach to how you handle problems. And I think, uh, based on the evidence that we have, it is a fundamentally better approach inside of an organization. It's really, it's a really interesting subject, uh, partly because I think, I gather that one of the hardest things to get over in, in trying to bring about a system more like what you're describing is an association that people have with uh, being tough being effective. And they think that the sort of tougher something is, I, 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 I have a little phrase where I call it confused, conflating negativity with realism. Sure. Uh, and how do you, I mean, if you're, if you're in an environment where say there's a manager who might even be a non-technical person, but who's got to manage all these technical people, how do you convince them that they should adopt a, more of a restorative justice approach if they're just deeply in the culture of punitive justice? Sure. So the first question I would ask is how effective has your punitive justice measures been, right? Has it actually reduced the incidence of the stuff you're trying to stop? Because in a lot of cases, it doesn't, right? Or it doesn't seem to. So a good example of this is um, if you investigate the logic of a punitive uh, response to an accidental dropping of prod, what, like, the person didn't intend to do it in the first place. So are you going to scare them into being more careful? Or is what's going to happen is their morale is now going to take a hit and they're more likely to leave. I would be, I would, that would be the next question I would ask is what's your retention like after a punitive action? Do they stay? Do they improve as engineers? Do, does your team continue to function highly or does it break down the team? Right? Because I would expect my prediction is based on the, the evidence that I, I was uh, looking at through Sidney Decker's links and his uh, resources in the back of the book is that the answer is no. 
And then the second thing, the second kind of line of questioning I would have is how often does your team come to you to let you know there was a problem? And how often does it only get uncovered when it's huge and critical, right? I'd rather know as a, as a leader, I'd rather know early and often that something went wrong and here's what we did to adjust it. Here's how we changed process or whatever, right? I don't want to find out when it blows up live in front of all of our customers that, yeah, we've been having problems with this thing for six weeks and we thought we could work around it, but it didn't really work. And now, oops. And does your approach to restorative justice inform uh, your approach to documentation? Uh, I think, I like to think it does, right? I like to think that it kind of speaks through a lot of the stuff I do. Um, But I also think that documentation is one of the tools that we have uh, towards a restorative approach, right? When, When you notice something's wrong, you immediately document that it is, and then you let folks know about it. You're as open and transparent as you can be, as early as you can be. And then you use that documentation to inform how you change things, right? So I think that's important. Yeah, you've got a really great talk on YouTube that I think was relatively recent that I watched where you talk about documentation and the different types. And for those for those listening, one, one thing I should just sort of calling back a little bit, when Mike is talking about production, that means you've you've deployed some software code that you've written that's actually live affecting people out there. And uh, if you do that by accident when you were intending to just keep things internal, it's a real heart attack kind of moment. Yeah, um, it's, the sort of, it's the sort of thing that definitely loses people money, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is that um, documentation might sound boring, but it's actually in a world that's basically running on software. I can't stress enough how important having good processes around documentation actually are for our quality of lives and for things like our power grids not getting hacked, uh, things literally not blowing up. This is actually, it's, it's sort of like I've, I've talked about this on the, on the podcast before with people in the way that version control is actually becoming an important part of, of people's day-to-day lives. <laughs> Um, yeah. uh, and in, in sort of in ways you might not know and in ways that more and more people are, are getting to know. And uh, I wanted to ask you specifically if you could talk about the three different types of documentation you mentioned in that talk, which are reference docs, narrative docs, and context docs. Sure. Uh, so the first one that most people are very, very familiar with is reference documentation. So reference documentation um, can be very quickly defined as the information that you need in order to get a particular thing done. Right. It's very cut and dry. How do I use this feature? Uh, So an example of this would be um, how do I change my Amazon email? Right. How do I change the email account with my for my Amazon stuff? They'll have reference documentation that will explain that. Um, But reference documentation is usually very, very dry um, and you won't really remember it. Uh, So a a good way to kind of compare and contrast that to the next type of documentation, uh, which is narrative, is how many I guess, well, I can't say how many of you, but but can you quote a passage for me from a textbook you've read recently? Like a, a particularly like a history textbook, right? Um, probably not, but I bet you can quote something from a novel you read in the last year, right? Uh, and the reason for that is that your brain is fundamentally wired for the second type of documentation, which is narrative. So humans have told stories to each other for about as long as we've had language, right? Um, it's one of the very first things we did. It's something that's universal across every single culture is the telling of stories. Your brain is wired to hear, process, and understand stories. So what narrative documentation says is, okay, since that's true, right, let's go ahead and teach somebody something in a format that they can understand. So narrative documentation, instead of just saying, click this, click that, whatever, you might say, okay, so you're wanting to change your Amazon email. Here's where you would need to go, and this is in the top right-hand corner. 
and there are these concerns. Or you might walk through an actual story of somebody changing their email. So uh, you've read thousands of pages of narrative docs without knowing it, which is every blog post you've ever read probably. Um, almost all of those are a form of narrative documentation. So narrative documentation tells a story. It doesn't have to have explicit characters, but it can. It doesn't have to have a specific plot arc, but it can. Um, and the degree to which you cling to those narrative structures kind of informs how memorable the thing will be for people. Um, and then the third type of documentation is context documentation. So context documentation, uh, in my view, is criminally overlooked by everybody everywhere. Um, so if reference documentation tells you exactly how to do something and narrative documentation helps you to understand how it applies to you, context documentation explains to you why somebody else did something. So a good example of this would be um, why does your app login require two-factor, right? Um, lots of apps are moving towards this. It's pretty important. And then the context would be for security purposes. It's the easiest thing that they can do to reduce the incidence of abuse and um, uh, security problems with their platform. So if they turn that on, they can guarantee that context documentation is put somewhere that you can find it and understand why a decision was made. Context documentation gets more important the closer you get to uh, a, an additive interaction, I suppose. If you're going to contribute back to something, context documentation becomes even more important. Um, so in our field, uh, in software engineering, very, very often you will come across a project and you'll look at it and you'll ask yourself why on earth they did that. But the truth is the people who are doing the work are very smart, right? Um, I, I tend to assume everybody I meet is competent at whatever they're doing. Um, and given that that's probably true, right, then it behooves me to try to understand why they did something that I don't understand. Because that, that implies that I'm missing context, which is why I refer to them as context documentation. So it provides that additional understanding and it prevents them from rehashing the same argument. So one of the ways I tell engineers that you can tell you're missing a context doc is if you get the same question about something you did five or six times, it implies that that's not clear to people from the outside. And so you should document it and make it available. That's a really great explanation. Thanks for that. Uh, you reminded me actually of something that we encountered just uh, this morning at LeanPub, which was someone unhappy that they were trying to make a purchase and they saw that two of their three pieces of information when they were purchasing didn't match and so they couldn't make a purchase. And this, mm. this ha we have to do this because of it's kind of complicated and I won't explain the whole thing, but to comply with EU... Uh, value-added tax rules, um, we had to implement this pretty complex system that we really wish we didn't have to do, uh, but we did in order to comply with it. And what it means is that if you're doing something like, say, using a virtual private network that tells our system that you're in one country and then you're actually in another one, and it, it, you know, it, we, we, we serve up this error uh, message, and we do have an explanation, a context explanation of, of why we do that, but we don't link to it from that error message. And you just made me realize that if we just done something simple, so this is actually a very practical thing. That person would have been, they wouldn't have emailed us and they wouldn't have been so unhappy because they would have seen not only what the explanation was, but that we cared enough to explain why we were doing what we were doing. Um, I've got a question I want to ask you about the future of automation and documentation. I was at a conference not too long ago in Vancouver where someone who was a CEO of a, a company that basically provides you know, customer support was talking about how like the, the companies of the future that win are going to be those that can automate support as much as possible. And that's partly because people ex want their problems to be resolved right away. And they mm -hmm. don't, they're becoming more and more comfortable with the idea that it's actually 
it, your initial interaction, if it's with like a bot or something like that, is actually likely overall to be a more efficient way of getting your issue resolved because a bot might serve you. It sounds like you might have, be having one of these three problems and then you go, aha, it's that one. And then if, if that doesn't work, then you contact a person. Um, and we, we use something called intercom, which I, I'm guessing you might be familiar with, uh, where people can, people can like, if you see a little bubble on the bottom right of your, of a web page, uh, for a service and you can type a message there, that that's probably something like intercom. And what it will do is it, it makes it easy for you to turn your responses to people's questions into articles. And so when people ask questions in the future, it can serve them up. Or, is this article helpful? Is this article helpful? Is this article helpful? And then you can see if they interacted with it. And like, it's, it's really brilliant. Uh, and I was wondering if in, in your experience with documentation, do you think that things like automation are going to be making a big difference going forward? I think so. I think that's going to be um, hugely different. The only thing, so when you asked the question, my first thought was automating docs is really hard and dangerous and usually bad um, in the sense of writing the initial doc. But what you're describing here is if the, the automated system can't resolve the problem, it doesn't have the context required to be able to give them the correct answer. It escalates to a human. The human comes up with a, an answer that is uh, hopefully at least somewhat generalizable. And then after that, it's just available from then on which is something we were pushing for at last job. We were talking about um, essentially building a, a super search across all of our different places for knowledge keeping so that, you know, when you had a problem, you'd be able to kind of introspect across this whole set of uh, valuable data. Because one of the things that we talk about a lot in engineering is that we tend to prefer sharing documentation verbally uh, over writing it down, which is good for the team to a certain extent and terrible for absolutely everybody else, right? Um, I think... As we move forward, you're going to see a lot more um, of those chatbots for answering questions and for resolving issues. And I think that's a good thing because that frees up your support engineers for the really hard, complicated, tangly problems, right? Because uh, you're never going to get away from needing them. There will always be something that you haven't seen before. That's just a reality of software at this point. But it, it's the same thing as the rest of automation, in my opinion, is that um, automation doesn't end jobs. It sets you up to do more interesting work, right? If you're currently spending 70% of your time doing something, if you're answering the same question on seven out of 10 calls, then that's not a good use of your time because there, you know, there'd be a, a better thing that you could do with that. Um, whether that's improving the service or that's taking time to like call back customers and check up on them and see how they're doing or whatever makes sense in your context. Before moving on to talk a little bit about the PowerShell conference book that you were involved with, and then, of course, your course, um, I wanted to talk to you about another type of documentation you're involved with, which is uh, for tabletop role-playing game you've got called oh. Pentola. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's really interesting. I was looking at the, the, the documentation, um, uh, and it's, it's a really interesting exercise just reading it, but it must have been fascinating to write. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, so, so for those listening, this is going to be a very, very geeky moment, but... In your game, Pentola, can you explain a little bit about what it is? Sure. Uh, so Pentola is a tabletop role-play game. Um, probably the uh, closest thing that people are going to be familiar with on this podcast is uh, Dungeons & Dragons. It's in this sort of similar vein, um, but it's descended from a cousin, which would be RuneQuest. Uh, for those of you who are super geeky, it was much more popular in the UK than it ever was in the US. Um, so uh, it's a tabletop role-playing game, the very, very loosest idea is that you get a character concept somehow, um, you get together with a couple of friends, and then uh, situations are presented to you, and then those situations, uh, you are free to act however you want, and the person running the game 
takes the role of the world and the NPCs uh, in this traditional style of play. And so what it affords you, if you've ever played like a, a video game role playing and you've been frustrated with dialogue options, for example, uh, if you've ever been like, I wouldn't say any of these things. In a tabletop game, you can say whatever it is that you feel the character should say. Um, and it allows you to kind of examine uh, different situations, different ideas, uh, and kind of play through those in a what I think of as a reasonably safe space, especially if you have the right group. I think when I was uh, reading some of your tweets on on Twitter, I saw that you have an interest in world building, um, and which is which is obvious given that you've created a game. Uh, but I've got to confess that although I knew about the idea, I actually hadn't heard the term world building until I listened to, and this is again, this is now not geeky, this is, I guess, nerdy. Uh, I was listening to an Ezra Klein interview with the fantasy author N.K. Jemisin, uh, where they actually, she took him through the process of, of building a world. And she talked, and this is, I'm not sort of trying to be cheeky here. I didn't really put it together, but that what she was, what you do in the world, in the science fiction or fantasy world building exercise is actually, you have to do a lot of documentation. Uh, in, in, yeah. in, in case your characters end up in situations, you want to have something, you want to have thought through, you know, the, the physics of the world and the social structure of the world and the politics of the world and other things. Do you, did you have a process for world building that you engaged in when you were developing Pentola? Uh, so actually Pentola is a very loose descendant of a home game uh, that's been going on for a long time where I bounced in and out of it. This is like the seventh version of the rule system. Seventh or, excuse me, eighth. Um, so the way that we actually generated this iteration was there's another game by Ben Robbins. I think the handle might be Lame Mage, uh, games are Lame Mage Productions. Anyway, they make a game called Microscope. And so Microscope is a, um, multiple player fractal timeline world building game thing where you set a hard start point and a hard end point. And then from there on, you can add periods, events, and scenes. And super, super briefly, periods are big chunks of time, events are smaller chunks of time, and then scenes are exactly what they sound like, a scene within a particular uh, event. So if we were looking, uh, for example, um, if we were looking at like uh, recent American history, you might have the period of uh, Obama's first term and Obama's second term, and then an event inside of those might have been the election and then a scene might have been uh, like a campaign rally or something like that. Um, and you could do that in fantasy, whatever the setting, it doesn't matter. Um, but so what you do is you go around and you take turns and each person can add a period event or a scene uh, and you set focuses. And so what it allows you to do is kind of collaboratively build up context uh, for whatever this, this uh, idea that you want to explore is. And what we decided to do is to do this before we played a game um, and we set you set restrictions so these are things that you can never bring into the game even if they make sense and then you set yes pleases essentially which is you can always bring these in even if they don't make any sense so one of the things that we added to that board was uh flight by trebuchet so there is now in the setting the ability for you to like travel between neighborhoods by getting in a wingsuit getting nestled into a trebuchet and then being launched into the air towards it it's goofy it's fun um but we did a lot of that together, um, and then I went off on my own and began to kind of document some of the stuff, right? Because you have kind of a base layer. You've got some ideas. You've got like a skeleton to kind of hang on to. Now you've got to go add intrigue, and you've got to add interesting information and details that they don't know so that they can uncover those during play. But they'll have a sort of through current that they understand that gives them enough familiarity with the world. Um, and now we're all working together to kind of 
uh, build out uh, the rest of that world and make it something that is usable by humans who didn't sit in that microscope game. That just sounds really fascinating and really fun. I'll make sure to link to the project in uh, yeah. in the transcription for this interview. Um, moving on to talk about the PowerShell conference book. Uh, can you this 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 was a, a sort of good good cause book in addition to being something um, very uh, useful to, to people who read it at the same time. And uh, so, could you talk a little bit about what PowerShell is first, and then for people who just might have absolutely no idea about what it is, and then talk a little bit about the book project. Yeah, sure. Uh, so PowerShell is the glue language of automation for people in uh, Windows-centric environments, and now uh, even past that, because now PowerShell is cross-platform. Uh, PowerShell changed the way that you interacted with Windows. Windows has always been an, an API, an application programming interface first uh, sort of operating system, which meant that a lot of the time it was really, really hard to um, write custom scripts against. Right. Um, there's probably some people who remember writing VB script, uh, which is not a pleasant experience. Batch scripting is not a lot of fun either. PowerShell gave you access to everything that you had in uh, developer land through .NET. You could just load any library and then use the objects and methods within it. And what it allowed us to do was take all these disparate things that don't talk very well to each other, don't have like a lot of good interfaces with each other, hook them up and go. Uh, and it has really, really changed the face of how we manage Windows systems now. Uh, more and more, you'll see this on job applications when they're looking for people. They want somebody who's a PowerShell expert, is what they'll always say, but they'll pretty much settle for somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, and it's it underlies a lot of the technology, a lot of the interactions. Pretty much all your configuration management on Windows is going to touch on PowerShell in some way. And uh, what was the inspiration for the PowerShell conference book? The inspiration there was that there were definitely some folks who uh, didn't get to speak at the PowerShell conference, um, and there were some folks who did. And uh, Mike Robbins wanted to raise money for the OnRamp scholarship, which is through the DevOps Collective. So the OnRamp scholarship provides travel, food, um, hotel, training, mentorship, and networking opportunities for uh, folks who are just getting into IT operations specifically. There's lots and lots of similar programs for folks who want to go in and start being a developer or who want to start doing testing or something similar, but there's very, very few of these for operations. Um, most people fall into operations um, as kind of their path there. So what they wanted to do was say, okay, we have this body of knowledge. We have this body of expertise. What we want to do is help somebody kind of jumpstart their career, give them this opportunity to get some full eight hours a day training, and then in the evening, network with all of these experts and professionals in the field who are speaking at these events, who are running user groups, et cetera. Uh, and then at the same time, also set them up with some mentors who can help them out during, before, or, uh, and after the event. And hopefully they'll be that kind of new set of people. And when I say new to IT, I don't mean just 18-year-old kids coming in. I mean also people who are transitioning. So if you used to play music and you want to do this now, like for some reason you've decided IT is more interesting than playing music for money. It's normally the other way around. Um, or if or, you or a major in Russian and philosophy, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you want to, if you want to switch into the career, that makes sense. Um, if you have been out of work for a couple of years and you want to get into it, that makes sense. So uh, several of those scholarships are also uh, earmarked for underrepresented folks uh, because that's also a problem in the community. Um, it's systemic; it's everywhere, uh, and it's more inexcusable year over year, right? Um, so. Mike took a look at this and saw how many scholarships there were and said, hmm, I think there should be more. 
And so he reached out to uh, Don Jones and the folks at the DevOps Collective and said, hey, uh, what if what if we wrote a book that would uh, try to donate all the sales through the, because I think at the time he'd already known about the uh, Lean Pub causes and that you could uh, essentially give away your royalties to a uh, charitable organization. So he said, what if we did that and we earmarked it for these scholarships? So they said, that sounds like a good idea. And then the way that Mike spun it out was, okay, I'm going to get as many PowerShell community folks together as I can who are capable of writing a chapter. And then the genesis for it was, okay, write a chapter as if it was a PowerShell talk, right? So there's a lot of people who cannot attend these summits, can't attend these. They're either out of reach because they can't get off work or they can't get approval to go or they don't have the money or the tickets sold out. So I said, okay, well, let's, let's write a chapter as if it's a talk and then you'll get however many talks out of that, right? Um, and so we ended up with, I think, 31 or so, 31 or 32 individual discrete uh, chapters that cover something deep level for PowerShell that you could um, kind of sink your teeth into. And it's spread across everything from how do I do uh, chat ops, chat operations? How do I do, um, how do I interact with cloud resources? How do I troubleshoot things? What do I do about documentation? Like all those types of topics um, written by experts on them. And then all the royalties, again, go to the scholarship. Yeah, that's fantastic. Do you know how many scholarships it's funded so far? It's been a very big success. Yeah, it has it has fully funded three separate scholarships. Um, so uh, each scholarship uh, was about, I think, $4,000. So it fully funded three. And we didn't quite get to a fourth one before the deadline for this year. But all the money that the book made up to this point and all the money that it makes going forward still goes straight to that scholarship fund. Um, and I just got tapped today to work on volume two. So we're going to do that probably after the summit in April. Fantastic. That's great to hear. Um, moving on to your course. So you've got a course mm -hmm. that's, I think, about 60 or 70% complete called PW Shop, a PowerShell 101 workshop. Just setting the background here before we talk about it specifically, um, I think this is the, the 100th interview we've done for this podcast. Uh, and it just so happens as we enter into this new century uh, that you're the very first person we're interviewing primarily as a course author rather than a book author. And the reason this is happening is that it's only recently that LeanPub launched the ability to make courses, online courses, in addition to making books. Uh, and so I'm really excited to talk to you about your experience doing that, being one of the very first people to use our new courses feature. Uh, and as, as I'm sure you, you know, uh, at LeanPub, we believe very deeply in the customer development process, which means talking to creators in order to improve things for them and for everybody going forward. And, you know, this is one of the reasons LeanPub is, when it's working well, is as smooth and as powerful as it is now is because of, you know, years of talking to people, uh, you know, online, but also on this podcast. So I'm really excited to start this new journey here. Uh, I guess my first question is, why did you decide to choose LeanPub as the platform for this course? Uh, so I want to make one real quick detour, uh, which is that I should have mentioned that I was a contributing editor to the PowerShell conference book, as well as an author. Um, I only wrote one chapter, but then the other two editors uh, are Mike Robbins and Jeff Hicks, and they definitely deserve credit for doing the lion's share of that work. Um, I, should, I should have mentioned that myself. Sorry. No, that, that was no, that's my fault. <laughs> They're my friends. I should have remembered. <laughs> uh, so the um, reason that I picked uh, LeanPub for the course is I didn't actually intend to do the course at all initially. Uh, I figured I would uh, write a book. I would, I would write it out and then put it on there. And I saw that there was the, um, the courses option is go ahead and create a course. I was like, okay, well, I, I just did this workshop at Chocolatey Fest um, in San Francisco in October. So I said, well, I've already done a bunch of this work. I wonder if I can convert it into a book format. 
And then I saw the course and then I looked into the course a little bit and you had the option to do exercises and quizzes. And I thought, well, my thing's built around exercises. That seems like a better fit. Uh, I took a look and it seemed like the right sort of thing to do. And then I just started writing it and putting it out there. Um, I had no idea that it was relatively new at the time, right? I just, I was, oh, this is an available option to me. I'm going to go with this. Um, and the other reason was that I write almost exclusively in Markdown. Uh, so I had to learn Markua for this. I don't know if that's how I pronounce it or not. Yeah. Um, cool. So I had to write in Markua instead of the LeanPub flavored Markdown for it, but it's still plain text, uh, and I'm still able to use my normal workflow, which is to make an edit or whatever, and then commit it, push it, review it, and then merge it when I'm happy. Uh, so my workflow is exactly the same as it was before, but now I'm also able to do it in a way that it's going to get me money back, uh, which is not the most important part. The most important part was that it's, it's, I don't have to do all the evangelism to find the thing, right? There's a, a place that people can go to find the store and they're going to see that there and be able to kind of grab onto it. And my goal is to help as many folks as I can with it, which is why it's, um, been going about as as uh, fast as it has been so i want to get it up there and get it available for people yeah you, you mentioned markua there uh just to explain to people listening um well for those just going even back a further step for those who might not know what markdown is markdown is a way of writing in plain text so uh you write you write in just uh, a sort of like feature free text editor that's not kind of wrapping what you type in all kinds of code like a software like Microsoft Word would do. Uh, basically, any computer in the world knows what an A means in a plain text editor, uh, whereas it might not when in different types of writing software like, like Microsoft Word. Um, and when you're writing that way in Markdown, what, it's, what Markdown was invented for was a way of writing in plain text and creating web pages. Uh, so the idea is that if you want to make something a link, you put the thing that people are going to see in between square brackets uh, and then afterwards in um, parentheses, parentheses. parentheses uh, you put the actual destination. So the, the web page where the person's going to go, this allows you to write out a link without needing to do any, any sort of fancy formatting or anything like that, no, without having to have some software do anything for you. You just, you just actually type out the instructions. And if you want something to be italic, a word to be italic, you put an asterisk before it and an asterisk after it. This is similar to how in the, people often think that we're actually, these kinds of things are very, kind of high tech and new, but actually this, this is an old thing. For example, the reason you had underlining on a typewriter was not to indicate that something should be underlined. It was to indicate that something should be in italics. So that was an old form of, of, of markup and markdown was meant to allow you to write web pages easily, uh, with sort of shortcuts basically, uh, in plain text. And so for many years, we've had something, we, we took Mark, Mark, we took Markdown and made something called LeanPub flavored Markdown, which basically the idea was that the same way you use Markdown as a sort of standard for making web pages, you would use LeanPub flavored Markdown as a standard for making books. And then eventually my, my co-founder, Peter Armstrong, decided to write just a brand new thing uh, called Markua, which expanded to be a way of not just writing books, but also of writing courses. So in the same way that Markdown is for writing web pages and sort of conventional LeanPub flavored Markdown was for books. Markua is for both books and a, a sort of spec for writing courses in plain text as well. Uh, so we're really excited. We've been planning this for so long and we, we were working actually with a team at Johns Hopkins University on constructing our courses feature um, over the last quite a, quite a while. So it's actually quite robust now that it's out. Um, and I wanted to ask, did you find, so now with that long explanation over, um, did you find 
Markua easy to use when it came to the course content, like marking something is this is an exercise and this is a- yeah ab- absolutely um, it, it's easy it's very well documented um, I use the the Markua uh, uh, spec information to kind of work through that um, I didn't have any real problems with it it has lots and lots of similarities to Markdown so there's a lot of familiarity uh, kind of muscle memory there the only real complaint I had was that my text editor doesn't do syntax highlighting for me uh, because it's in a, a .txt file which is not a huge deal. It was just one of those things that I was so used to seeing. And so for the first time, I was back to um, to having plain text that didn't have any any sort of uh, syntax highlighting for me. So for uh, those of you listening, what that will do is if I have the text that indicates italics, um, my editor actually italicizes it visually for me. So it lets me know that I've, I've done the right thing. Um, or if I have a header, it'll make it a different color. So... I lost out on that, but otherwise the editing experience was completely uh, as I would have expected it to, right? What I would have wanted from it. I didn't run into anything where I was like, that's dumb. I don't like the way that this works. Every time I was like, this thing isn't doing what I need to do, I would go look at the documentation and then see that, oh, there it is. That's how I do it. And then try it. And then it worked and it was fine. That's, so That's fantastic to hear. Um, <laughs> uh, so one, one really interesting thing uh, about any, any kind of digital product that one's creating and selling online is the issue of pricing. Um, Lean, LeanPub uh, gives people more opportunities, I would say, than most places do for pricing because we have, well, A, we just let you update it in- instantly and change it whenever you want, which not everybody does. But also, um, well, another thing we do is we let you, we pay you an 80% royalty rate. Uh, which is higher than other most other places, and lets you lets you do some make some interesting choices. But we also have variable pricing, which means you can set a minimum and a suggested price. So although this sounds very complicated, these are actually very powerful tools for content creators to use. And I wanted to ask you uh, what your approach has been to pricing so far. So I started the book with the suggested price uh, as a minimum price of four ninety nine, which is as low as I can set it. And then I told everybody, you can still get it for free. It's not finished, right? Like, go ahead and drop the. If you grab the slider and you move it to the left, it'll go down to free, and then you can grab it for free. If you don't have the money to pay for it, don't worry about that. Just pick up a copy. You'll get all the updates for free, even if I set a minimum price later, which I think is a great feature. Um, but I had several people who, when I released it at four ninety nine, grabbed that slider and instead of moving it to the left to make it free, moved it to the right which confused me. I understand if you, if you grab it and you just get it at the, the suggested price, like uh, mentally anyway, I was, I was not prepared at all to see people move the slider to the right. Somebody moved the slider over to $20 and I was like, that's four times what I said the price should be. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? But it allows people, the thing I like about the variable pricing is um, if you think it's going to be worth more or somebody's told you about it and you're excited about it and you want to Make sure that that money gets reinvested in whatever, whether that be the future projects or whatever from the, the author. Uh, you can go ahead and crank that slider over to the side. We had that a lot with the PowerShell conference book was people who knew that they wanted to grab the book. They knew that they were uh, all the money was going to go to a donation. So they would just crank it up to 100 or to 120 and then go ahead and click submit anyway. Um, I got chewed out a little bit by a friend on Twitter when he saw my minimum price of 499 and he was like, no, that needs to be 4999. I promise that you're going to get more value out of it. And I was like, I appreciate that. I'm going to tell people you said that. Um, plus it was on Twitter, so I could hit retweet and send it to everybody. But uh, I think it's so valuable to be able to set a suggested price and to be able to have it go either way, either up or down. Because um, I think there's a lot of people who will just kind of, not mindlessly, but they'll see it and they'll think, okay, that seems like a fair price and they'll click it. 
or they'll see it and they think, I don't have that kind of money right now. I'm going to go ahead and drop it. Or they'll see it and think, okay, I already like the work I've seen this person do before. I'm going to go ahead and throw more at it. The other thing I've been doing is um, slowly working it up to uh, towards uh, $10, which is what I was going to set the uh, the price at uh, when it reached 100 that's still currently my my plan loosely. Although when you say you go ahead, how did you mean reach a hundred percent complete? Yeah, so, yes, sorry. So, yes. Yeah, so it's re- just to be clear to everybody. So what what Mike's doing is very interesting. Is he's doing something a lot of lean pub authors do with their books, which is increasing the minimum price for his book over time as it approaches completion. Yeah, and so well, in this case, I'm I'm increasing the suggested price. I'm leaving I'm leaving the minimum price still at free. Um, I will, at completion, move the minimum price to the minimum of $5. Uh, and part of the reason for that is that uh, I have a uh, voiceover actor who is uh, doing narration for my chapters, and I want to make sure that he gets royalties for it and is able to um, get some sort of payout for it. I don't want him to be in a position where it's like, hey, it's free. You're never going to get money. Good luck. Thanks for hours and hours and hours of endless work trying to narrate uh, a code book. Um yeah, thanks for telling that story. That's that's so fascinating because, you know, for almost 100 podcasts now, we've been telling people the story of how um, people sliding to the right. So that means choosing to pay more than they have to when they could even choose to pay less uh, is something that a lot of Lean Pub authors have experienced over the years. And everybody's always surprised uh, <laughs> when it first happens because, you know, we've been led by sort of social convention to think that people are always going to try to get away with paying the least that they can for a product. Um this this is something that's changed, uh, I would say, in the last 20 years, not just in public perception, but in public behavior. Uh, one of the reasons it happens is that um, individual creators can easily reach more people now. And so unlike in the past, when you bought something, there was almost always a sort of big intermediator, like, you know, between a, an author and a book sale was a publishing company and a bookstore and a wholesaler and a truck and all that kind of stuff. So now on LeanPub, for example... Uh, when you choose what to pay, we actually have a little sl- pricing slider that shows you what the author earns. Um, and so one thing people do is they'll actually slide that around uh, to get it to the, like, I want the author to get 10 bucks from this sale. Um, another really interesting phenomenon when it comes to pricing, and this I think is, is going to apply to courses more than it has in the past to books, is that, well, A, as your friend pointed out, courses are conventionally understood to go for the, the tens of dollars or even more, unlike unlike ebooks or even books generally, most books are thought to be worth less than, people want them to be worth less than that. Um, But uh, we've actually got a course set on LeanPub where the suggested price is $300 and the minimum price is free. Uh, And we are seeing purchases in the hundreds of dollars for it. Uh, And one of the reasons for this mysterious activity uh, is that um, often when people are doing corporate training, um, they feel a requirement to buy rather than use something free. Because mm-hmm. something free seems less legitimate, and if you're if you're putting in your professional development hours, um, the more legitimate that things look, the better. And at the same time, there's this curious effect that I think uh, Patrick McKenzie has talked about, you know, for years ago now, where and you you hear about this in sort of enterprise sales situations where people are trying to sell a product into an enterprise, which is that it's kind of a version of the sort of more expensive wine. Uh, cons- oh, yeah. consumption and tastes better effect where like if you say that if you if you're if you're pitching to some executive so i want to get the training i want to get our i want to get our our crack team on this training course it's going to cost 99 cents <laughs> that, <laughs> that manager might be like, we're, we're not the 99 cent team the rival team across the hall they've got a thousand dollar you know course that they're taking 
Uh, yeah. so, so anyway, there's, there's lots at play when you're a content creator and you're trying to decide how to price things. I think it's been one of the other interesting things too, is that, um, lean pub has been very good. It's a very good tool. I think for a safe way for an author or a content creator to build credibility while they're working on, on things. So if you check out a book that I, that somebody's involved in and it was good and it was high quality, and then they publish a course, you're very much more likely because there's almost a more personal sort of uh, interaction between these. Cause I think most authors on lean pub are fairly accessible. Um, and again, it, it, it reduced, there's, there's no real middleman between us, right? Like there's a platform and there's a service that, that we, the authors are all taking advantage of, but from the perspective of the user, they go to the storefront they order the thing and then they email a question or whatever. And then the author gets back to them. Right. Um, it's a very different experience. And I think that that has a lot to do with, how people are going to uh, pursue content going forward. I think you're going to see more of that over time, or at least I hope so, because I think that's how you get better content, right? Better, more targeted for particular audiences that kind of says the things that they need or, or gives them the things that they need. I think it'll probably be the same for courses too, but I don't think we've seen anybody explore that space that way. No, that's, I think, I think that's right. Uh, thanks. Thanks for confirming that. Yeah. The, the, for years, you know, the lean pub mantra and sort of raison d'etre has been, if you publish while you're writing your book, gives you an opportunity to improve it based on feedback from early adopter readers uh, who are going to be the ones who are most committed to your book's success because they need it. That's why they're reading it before it's done. Um, uh, and we were really hoping to see the same thing would happen with courses. And I actually saw on the forum for your course, uh, there's already been some activity with people giving you feedback. And I think on Twitter as well. Yeah, I get a fair amount of feedback uh, via Twitter uh, and via email. So far, I haven't had anybody, almost all the feedback has been around like the getting started process, like the, the kind of on-ramp. Um, mm. very little of it has been like, Hey, this exercise didn't work for me or anything like that. So it seems like, um, uh, uh, unless until I get evidence to the contrary, once they start getting into the exercises, everything works well for them, but there's those rough patches, which also tells me where to go back and zero in. Right. The reason that I've been trying to get the content out the door first in this case, cause it'll involve some technical rewrite stuff, uh, around setup is because that stuff I can get out fairly quickly. Once it's time for me to rework the underpinnings of the, the like tech stack that I'm suggesting that you use for the course, that means that as soon as I do that, I have to go through and test everything anyway, whether or not it's already ready to publish or not, right? So I want to be careful before I make that change because what I have now, the, the, so very, very quick detour, thing I have now is, quote, deprecated, end quote, but it's deprecated in the sense of a thing that'll go away in five years, not a thing that'll go away in five weeks, Um and so it's like, yes, I should move off of that. You're absolutely right. Um, and I will do that, but I want to make sure that when I do it, I do it in a way that won't break anybody who's currently working on the project. I don't want anybody who's got a course in flight to end up in a state where they cannot finish the course uh, or where the course is, uh, no longer accurately reflects what they're expecting. That's, uh, that's really interesting. That made me think that um, a useful feature might be, you know, we've, we've, conventionally got all kinds of information you can add about little boxes you could fill out as a course creator or as a book creator, like about the book, about the course, subtitle, you know, things like that. And it could be that creating an actual feature where it's, you know, something like how to take this course. If, oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course, any course author could just create a section at the beginning of their course and call it that. But if we actually create a feature that might help prompt people to do that because every course is going to be a little bit different. Every course creator is going to be interacting directly with their students. And so they're going to know better, you know, what the sort of 
particular things that are, are that need to be explained for that particular course. And so, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to add that to the queue of things for us to consider building. Sorry, I keep adding things to that queue for you. Oh, well, no, that, that that's <laughs> fine, actually. I yeah, know. So just the background on that is that Mike Mike has sent us an email or two um, with uh, suggestions for things to do and where things are going, been bugs and things like that. And we've really appreciated it. Um, on that note, actually, uh, my last question is, apart from all the things that you've mentioned to us already, uh, imagine, imagine all of Markua was, was, was completed and everything that we've set out there was working. What feature could we build? Can, can you think of any sort of dream feature that we could build that occurred to you while you were writing it? Oh, if only I had this. Oh, um, one thing. Uh, so this is outside of Markua and this might actually not necessarily be a dream feature. Um, but right now in order to review the quiz results, uh, one, I, I get uh, all exercises and quizzes together. Uh, and then two, I can't review like an individual quiz take kind of uh, in the UI. I have to download the data and then per- parse the data and look at it myself and kind of understand what happened. Um, so that would be useful for me is that I could go to a particular student, right? Um, whether the, uh, Probably preferably anonymized, right? And then uh, look through what they submitted, um, those kinds of things, or the option for them during an exercise to mark, a, like, especially an exercise, possibly a quiz, but especially an exercise, mark the exercise question as, I don't understand this, or this isn't clear, or um, this doesn't make sense, or, you know, something like that. Because in, I think in a lot of cases, um, what people will do with exercises is that they'll try to answer it, and they'll get the, the wrong answer, and it'll show them the answers. And they'll say, oh, okay, that's the answer, and then just type that in and go. Whereas they, if there was, like, some sort of uh, mechanism for them to, like, give the feedback, like, this didn't make sense... And that might be a feature that you could toggle off and on as an author rather than uh, something you would leave on permanently. Like if your course has been finished for three years, you probably don't want to hear as much about it, or maybe you do. Um, yeah, that's a really great, that's a really great suggestion, including the, the toggling it on and off. Uh, one of the reasons I say that is um, we're going to start trying to get universities to use LeanPub not only as a platform for MOOCs that their professors can create, but also... Uh, as a platform that they can use to provide courses to their students. Um, and probably universities wouldn't want students giving like this was an annoying question feedback <laughs> <laughs> on, on stuff uh, that directly in that case anyway. Um, and I should also mention in that context that currently when a course creator downloads the data of the results from people's taking of the courses, all the information is anonymized. Mm-hmm. I don't, I currently, I don't think we ever plan to change that for people right. who are sort of like lean pub authors, the course creator course creators. However, if someone's obviously a university professor and they've got an online course being provided to students in the university, then, you know, it would be, everybody would be throwing their tuition money away if it, if it weren't, if it were all anonymized. Uh, so in that very yeah. particular sort of behind a big paywall kind of case, uh, yeah. there, there might be non anonymized information, but it is, it is something we'll consider. I mean, you know, if, if, if we discover from that students are often, at least for particular kinds of courses, saying, hey, I would love the, the course author to be able to communicate with me and know who I am and, and provide me with feedback and help me out just like a teacher would, uh, then we might consider building something like that. But it would 100% be opt-in. Uh, oh, yeah. Of, of course. Uh, uh, two, two quick questions. The first is that you mentioned a MOOC, which I don't think we defined yet. So maybe that'd be useful. Yeah, massively open online course. Um, so the idea there is that you and the, the the big the big ones that people would have heard of platforms for this would be something like Coursera or edX, uh, where where what you can do is you can sign up uh, anybody anywhere in the world can sign up and take a you know read some material 
and then take a course, uh, which basically means doing some quizzes and answering some different types of questions from like multiple choice to fill in the blank to, you know, even essay questions in some cases. Um, and these courses are called massive because they can sometimes have millions of students, which brings all kinds of really interesting scaling issues with it. Uh, but it gives anybody in the world who's got some piece of knowledge the opportunity to set it out there for everyone in the world and also just for people to understand. The conventions around MOOCs have changed in the last, you know, they, they really started becoming only a sort of big thing about 10 years ago, and the conventions have always been changing. But one convention is that you can often take a course for free, but if you want to get the digital certificate that comes with it and, say, a badge on your user profile on the website or something like that, then you actually have to, then you often have to pay. So if you want the sort of official credit, credit, uh, then you then you pay for this. And LeanPub actually does have uh, certificate options for for MOOCs, so that anyone who's considering creating one can can do that. Yeah, and then the the second question I had was um, particularly about that that feature for sending feedback. I, as an author, am a hundred percent okay if they know that the feedback always comes from me, and I have no idea who they are. That's fine with me, right? If it's if it's anonymized, like back and forth messaging somehow. Um, or like I, I send them the email and then um, they can reply and it's it's between uh, like an automated list or whatever, right? And, and us, that's 100% okay with me. I don't need to know who they are. Um, it might help me if I do, but it's certainly, I would never want it to be anything but opt-in. Um, and I'd be, I'd be fine as an author with it, with it being uh, anonymous because I think a lot of people can probably take that the, the criticism a little bit more easily if they know it's anonymized and then it doesn't feel personal at all. Uh, so I think that would be a, a totally reasonable kind of like step. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much uh, for telling us a bit about your story. Oh, yeah. And about um, your approach to documentation and restorative justice and your game uh, and the power, <laughs> your role in the PowerShell conference book and that success and, uh, and your course as well. And I wish you all the best of success with it and hope to hear, to get more emails from you uh, with feedback. <laughs> as you so many emails. <laughs> all right. Thanks <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and rate the episode on iTunes. It really does help. And if you're interested in finding out about future episodes and other information about the podcast, please follow us at Front Mattercast on Twitter.